So she cut the carbs and she ate a low-carb diet for all the years that she was being successful. And she won all these races, and so did Mark Allen. And the key to both of them was that they have these long careers. And both of them had low-carb diets. That Triathlon Show, episode 44. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and I'm going to make this intro very short and sweet. You can hear more about today's interviewee and the intro to this interview series on last episode, episode 43, where we had part one of our interview with Professor Tim Noakes. And that was on the central governor model and how your brain really limits your performance by inducing perceived fatigue and you really could like physiologically go a lot faster and longer than you think you could. But that's that interview. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But today what we have on tap is uh, part two, which is on low carb, high fat diets. And this is something it has been a requested topic, and Professor Noakes is one of the most renowned experts in this field. So I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to discuss LCHF, low-carb, high-fat diets, with him. We go into topics like the relation between high-carbohydrate diets and diabetes, and how Tim ran the same times aged 61 as 41, if I remember correctly from our interview, when switching to a low-carb diet, and also things like Tim's take on uh, ketogenic diets, which is uh, kind of fashionable right now. So nothing more on my end for now. Enjoy the show. Let's move on to the second part of this interview and, and talk about nutrition and, and low-carb, high-fat in particular, as that is your one of your areas of expertise. So Again, fill us in on the background of how you got into that. You mentioned a bit of it already, how you wanted to rip out pages from the lore of running and, and rewrote it completely. So what happened to me was that I had advocated this high-carbohydrate diet for decades, for 33 years, in fact. And then one day, I had just finished writing the book Waterlogged. And it was an emotional moment for me because the the book... It meant a great deal. It was 30 years of opposition to many people, and I'd taken a lot of flack for writing the book. And I posted the final script to the editors in America, and I went to sleep, and then my brain in the middle of the night said, you will get up tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, and you will run 5 kilometers, and you'll run every day for the rest of your life. So I went out and had a run, and it was a terrible run. And when I came home, I was not feeling in great shape. I thought, something's got to give, and I fortunately opened my emails and there was an advert for a book called The New Atkins for the New You, written by Dr. Westman, Volick and Finney. And they claimed that you could lose weight on this high-fat diet, the Atkins diet. And I said, well, we know that's false because if you eat saturated fat, you're going to die of a heart attack. And, and Atkins had tried to kill us all. And here these people are linking their names to him. They must have sold out to him. But then I thought, but they're good athletes, good scientists. I knew of their work on high-fat diets and Stephen Finney, I knew, was a first-class scientist. So I said, there's a paradox here. I must give them the benefit of the doubt. So I went and read the book, bought the book and read it. And within two hours, I said, oh, my gosh, 
I got it all wrong for 33 years because there I saw they listed 150 studies of low-carbohydrate diets and the health benefits and the fact that your performance wasn't necessarily worsened on a high-fat diet. But you need to remember that in the 1970s when I was running marathons, we would go on a high-fat diet for three days before the marathon. So it was six days before, six, five, four days, we would eat a high-fat diet, no carbohydrates, and we'd feel terrible. And then for the last three, two, one days before the race, we would load up on carbohydrates like it was going out of fashion. And then initially, I used to run well on that, but gradually it just got worse and worse. And in fact, it didn't seem to help my performance. And the reason was because I was insulin resistant. I was resistant to carbohydrates. So I was just stuffing myself with these carbohydrates and they were, were making me sick. They weren't making me run any faster. So anyway, I went on the diet and literally... My running times went back from, I was 61, at the, they went back to what they had been when I was 41. Not at the distances, but at the shorter distances of up to 10 Ks, I got back to what I was running as a 40-year-old, but I was 60. So all the impairment I'd had between 40 and 60, which I thought was because I was just getting old, was nonsense. It was because I was eating this bad diet, too much carbohydrate in someone who was pre-diabetic and then ultimately diabetic. And so then I, I started reading, and I've been reading solidly for the last five or six years. I've read hundreds of books and tens of thousands of articles. And it, it all makes sense that, that humans evolved as fat burners. We, we, were, we hunted animals for their fat, not for their protein. And we developed the desire, particularly for the countries in the north of Europe. They live, we lived on mammoths. That, that's what we ate. And... We, we chose specifically mammoths because they had so much fat on them and they were such a reward when you kill these animals. So, because there was no carbohydrate, you can't grow carbohydrates in Finland. You know? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Or you couldn't at least. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't. You can now, but, but you couldn't then. So you had to eat these fatty animals. And the reason you ate the fatty animals is because humans have got to limit how much protein they can consume. We can only provide 35 to 40% of our calories by, from protein or else we die because we don't have the liver and the kidneys to get rid of the, the byproducts of protein metabolism. So that, that was a great realization for me. And then I started getting reports back from other people who said they'd gone on the high-fat diet. And one of them was, this is the real paradox, was that I helped a lady called Paula Newby Fraser, who's recognized as perhaps the greatest triathlete of all time. She's a South African who went to America when she realized she had a real talent because she won her first triathlon, which was a short-distance triathlon, and she won it without training. So she said, gosh, you know, I must have some ability. She won the right to go to Hawaii because she won that race, and she trained for like a month, and then she did really well. I think she might have come third or fourth in Hawaii in her first year. She then said, okay, listen, I've got a real chance. So she went to America, and she started training. In 1984, just when Steve Finney published his first paper showing that a high-fat diet may help athletes in endurance sports. And she asked me, she said, Tim, what do you think about this high-fat diet? So I said, Paula, you should try it. And after she had won 28 Ironmans and eight Hawaiian champ World Championships, when she retired, she came to see me in Cape Town and she said, Tim, the best advice she ever received in her life was that advice, to eat a high-fat diet. But I said, Paula, I didn't tell you to cut the carbs. <laughs> so she said, well, that's how I interpreted it. So she cut the carbs and she ate a low-carb diet for all the years that she was being successful. 
And she won all these races, and so did Mark Allen. And the key to both of them was that they have these long careers. And both of them had low-carb diets. I think Paula was a lower-carb than, than Mark Allen. But they're the two, guy, two persons in the triathlon who had these long careers. And I think we now understand why. Because if you're eating all that carbohydrate, and especially the refined junk that people justify that they can eat because they're athletes, that harms you. It harms your, your health and you get in, your body gets inflamed and you don't recover. And there might be all sorts of other complications. So I think we've, in, in talking about high-fat diets, we focus rather too much on the acute effects in the laboratory. If you go on a high-fat diet for three weeks, do you improve your performance? That's actually not the question. The question is, what happens if you eat a high-fat diet for your career? Do you race more often? Do you have more successful races? Do you last longer? Do you have fewer injuries? Those are the questions that the athletes are finding out for themselves. And I think the evidence is coming through that, that the elite athletes are adopting this diet. And as we speak, the Tour de France is going on. And, and as we speak, Chris Froome is leading the race for the fourth time. And here's a guy who converted to a low-carb diet. He lost eight kilograms and started to win races. And he's not gone back to a high-carbohydrate diet. It's very clear he's as lean as he's been for the last four years on this low-carb diet. That doesn't mean he doesn't take carbohydrates on the big days like today, which they've got a big day in the mountains. He will have a big carbohydrate breakfast, and he probably had a lot of carbohydrate last night, and he will take carbohydrates during the race. But that doesn't mean on the other days when it's not as demanding, when it's on the flat stages, he's not going to load up on carbohydrates to the same extent. And particularly when in the off-season, he's not going to be touching the carbohydrates. Yeah, you answered a lot of my follow-up questions already within that, in particular that uh, uh, longevity in your career. Um, I should make it clear that, that I've been talking about this before as well, that I'm not uh, necessarily a fan of low-carb diets, uh, but uh, but those actually those my lens or my viewpoint has been more kind of the acute performance and uh, performing optimally in a high-intensity race or even even if it's a bit longer but uh, yeah. then again if you if you look at that longevity you definitely present excellent arguments about that and uh, so so yeah that was that was great to hear one question about your your running times uh, that came to mind uh, did you lose a lot of weight between the age of 41 and 61 when you were running that's those same times again on that high fat diet that's a great question because in my running when i, I can answer it the reverse So my intervention was within six weeks. When I hadn't lost, I'd lost about six kilos in the first six weeks. But I eventually lost 20 kilos. So I lost within the first, I only lost a, a half or a quarter of the weight loss that I ultimately did. But all my running gains were achieved within six weeks. Bef long before I lost all the weight. So yeah. it was independent of the weight. You, but you're quite right. I had put on a lot of weight. I put on 15 kilos perhaps in those 20 years but but i got the i got my running back long before i lost all the weight okay okay uh but then again losing losing weight is going to give you even even more benefits of course i think it's roughly one percent uh, increase in running performance for percent body weight that you lose uh that's uh something that 
Hans van Dijk in his book uh, The Secrets of Running showed yeah. with uh, with some physics and and so it's uh, roughly a one on one correlation there so it's hugely important and obviously in cycling as well especially on those Tour de France stages mountainous stages with a lot of hills absolutely and i mean the chris Froome is the best example because i don't know if you know his story but uh, he has a cape town connection i'm from cape town so it's really interesting But when he came second in the Tour of Spain, he came home to Cape Town to meet his girlfriend, who is now his wife. And she said, gosh, Chris, what happened? You've lost all this weight. He said, well, I starved myself uh, on, the, on the Tour of Spain, and I came second. And I lost eight kilograms. So she said, well, you can't, you can't continue to starve. You've got to eat a high-protein diet. And that's what she said. But, of course, you can't eat a high-protein diet. She meant a high-fat diet. And then she advised him to continue on the diet, and she put him on a high-protein, high-fat diet and because she had some nutritional training. So that's how he got it. And, but he couldn't win the tour when he was eight kilograms heavier, but he dropped the eight kilos, and he became the world's best cyclist. You're quite right. But just to make one other point, my performance happened within it, between four and six weeks. Something happened in this adaptation. Suddenly, after four weeks, I suddenly started running much better. And within two weeks... I'd, I'd, I'd achieved a lot of that benefits. So in my case, there was a metabolic change that happened in my body. And maybe it was brain as well, but that the body changed and, and then I lost a lot more weight. But my performance didn't change all that much thereafter. So yes, I agree, absolutely. But I think for people like myself who are insulin resistant, that when you cut the carbohydrates, you get a huge metabolic advantage, even before, even without the weight loss. Yeah, would you say so? So, who would you say that this is for? Is it is it for for the for the everyday athlete? Even if you're not necessarily uh, in the risk zone for for type two diabetes or in, insulin resistant. You know that's that's a great question because you, firstly, if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, it's a nutrient poor diet. That's what we're not told. If your diet is based on grains and cereals, it's nutrient poor. And we've been fed this nonsense that it's high in vitamin B and all this rubbish. It's not. It's low in nutrients. High nutrient diets come from high fat diets from animal produce. And that is, if you want to get a really nutritious diet, that's what you have to eat. I'll give you an example. One of the guys that I converted recently, and he's, he's now the top Ironman triathlete in South Africa. He converted, and after 16 weeks, he did his best Ironman. He did eight hours, so he's, and he ran a 2.47 marathon which was two or three minutes faster than ever. And he'd adapted to the diet. And I asked him, so tell me, what were you eating before? And he showed me a list of what he was eating. It was rubbish. He was eating chocolates and sweets and Coke and chips. And I said, but how can you expect your body to succeed on this diet? Oh, but it's carbohydrates. I said, no, 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 it's nutrient poor, rubbish food. And as soon as he converted, as I've said, he, he improved. So I think that's the first problem that, that the, the highly processed foods that we eat and we're encouraged to eat and these goos and so on, that's not good food. And so you need to, everyone needs to get rid of them regardless of whether you're insulin resistant or not. If you're insulin resistant, and let's make the point that the majority of people are insulin resistant. And the further north you come from, the probably the more insulin resistant you are because your predecessors lived on woolly mammoths. And they didn't get any. 
How, do you have any per, per, any per, any numbers? Any do you know how many percent of of the population roughly would be insulin resistant? Well, you know, I think you have to look at the population, and most populations are insulin resistant. See, what we're told is like the Catavans in in the South Pacific. They eat a seventy percent carbohydrate diet, and they're profoundly insulin sensitive. But you go one island away to Australia and you find the Australian Aborigines who also lived, who, sorry, who didn't eat a high-carbohydrate diet, who lived off the land, and they're profoundly insulin-resistant. Or you take the, the Indians, the Plains Indians in North America, who lived on bison, they're profoundly insulin-resistant. And as soon as you give them this rubbish diet, this processed industrial diet, they become a beast diabetic and their health, within one generation, their health is utterly destroyed. Now, those are profoundly insulin-resistant populations. In North America, in California, they say 51% of the people are insulin-resistant. But wow. they haven't even tested properly. They haven't even tested them properly because that's just because they've got diabetes or pre-diabetes. In my own town, you know, they did a study of 1,000 people, and or every single one of them is pre-diabetic or diabetic. Now, this is a particular population. It's the indigenous population, the so-called mixed-race population. They, in this one study... 100% of those people are going to be, develop diabetes. And now that, again, it's an indigenous population, which would have come from populations that ate mainly animals, and now they've replaced it with this industrial diet. And that's when the insulin resistance and the diabetes develops. So it depends on the population. In the northern European countries, they're much less prone to get sick on this diet than, the other, than other populations who've never seen grains for, for most of their for their, most of their evolutionary history. But it's, it's 50%, 60%. And you see, the problem is you don't know that, like me. I mean, I was running all these races, and I know now that I was profoundly insulin-resistant. But I didn't know it at the time because I didn't know what insulin-resistance was. So my best, my best advice is no one should know what their cholesterol, because cholesterol is utterly meaningless. But if you've got your, what's called your glycated hemoglobin value, that's your HbA1c, your glycated hemoglobin value. That tells you what your average glucose is during the day for the last three months. If your value is more than 5.5%, you're eating too much carbohydrate and you need to cut down because you must be below 55 for optimum health. It's best to be 5, and if you were really athletic and optimum health, your value should be 5 or below. But 5.5 is fine. But if it's 5.6 and 5.7, you will develop diabetes. It's just a matter of time. And it will, that value will continue to rise. So if your value is above 5.5, you are essentially diabetic in weight. You're a diabetic in waiting. And what's going to make your diabetes come on more quickly is eating a high-carbohydrate diet because the running or the triathlon is not going to prevent it happening. So simple answer Tell everyone who's listening to this podcast to have the HbA1c value measured. If it's above 5.5, you're eating too much carbohydrate and you're going to get ill in due course. If it's below 5.5, continue with the diet that you're eating because you're not at, currently at risk of developing diabetes. But once it goes above 5.5, it's time to, to increase your fat intake and reduce your carbs. Yeah, thanks you. Thank you. That was great. And as usual, we'll have everything on the show notes so that the listeners, if you are driving or running or cycling right now, you can go to that show.com after the fact and 
and check those reference values and what it is you actually need to have a look at. That's uh, that's great. That's completely new knowledge to me. I think also there's uh, some fascinating new technology coming out that you can actually measure your your blood glucose in almost real time these days with some interesting devices and and there are wearables coming out on the market that that will do that do you know about this and do you see any value in that potentially yes i do and uh, another one coming out from apple and i know tim wood the ceo of apple has been wearing it for the last few months and as if clearly it's working or else he wouldn't wear it and want it to be publicized and they're obviously not targeting diabetics because because it then becomes a medical device. They're using it for, for athletes. Now, the key m- argument is Tim Wood lost 20 pounds when he was using this. And why? Because he started noticing that when he ate carbohydrates, his glucose shot up through the roof. And he said, but that's not healthy. I know that I mustn't have a high glucose. So he's changed his diet, lost 20 pounds or 10 kilograms. And probably is a lot healthier for it because he could see what happens. And what people have to understand is that chronic ill health is, happens every time you spike your insulin and your glucose. And every time you eat carbohydrates, your insulin shoots up and the glucose shoots up at the same time. And you don't want that. The key to longevity is to keep your insulin and your glucose as low as possible. And you can't do that on a high-carbohydrate diet. So people will finally get to see that that goo that they, or that high-carbohydrate meal that they take in the morning of the race or the high-carbohydrate meal that they recover on causes their blood glucose to skyrocket. And eventually they'll realize that actually that's not so healthy. Yeah, uh, I just interviewed uh, Dan Plews, who you may know of, and yes. he, together with Paul Larson, uh, did some experiments that they may have documented somewhere. I'll see if I have a look and include that in the show notes as well, where they have been using some sort of wearables. Probably not the Apple one. I'm not. I don't remember which one, but but they have some great insights on that as well, like a case study on themselves. Um, one, I have one listener question I posted on my Facebook page uh, for people to uh, what questions they wanted to ask you. And one of my coached athletes actually asked about uh, the benefits of maybe having like a, a preparation period, for example, the off season when you use LCHF or even ketosis to to lose weight, to get into your racing weight. What's your opinion on that? Well, if you've got a weight problem, you're eating too much carbohydrates. <laughs> so it's a simple solution. So, yeah, absolutely. If you've got weight problems, you see, what you have to understand is that you can't, don't, you can't exercise to lose weight. You have to do two or three. What, what, about, what about if it's not a weight problem, but, you know, you just have to get to your optimal racing weight. You need to lose those three kilograms extra, which is not a weight problem necessarily, but it's those last few kilos <laughs> that you need to lose. And, and, and then the second part of the question is, does ketosis have a part to play in this uh, as well? Or is a, an LCHF, a normal LCHF diet enough? Okay, so let me re-answer that question. It is a problem. If you weigh three kilograms heavier than you should be, then your diet's wrong. You, your diet's a problem. You shouldn't have to be at the weight you don't want to be. And I think this is the problem because we talk about calories in, calories out. So people say, oh, the only reason I'm three kilograms heavier is because I'm not doing that much exercise. No, 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 no. You're eating more calories than you need because they're all carbohydrate calories and you don't need them. You're insulin resistant and you're not burning those carbs. So what's happening, you increase, you've increased your carbohydrate intake more than you need. 
you're hyper-secreting insulin and you're storing the carbohydrate as fat and you're getting hungry. That's the key. See, obesity or weight gain is a problem of hunger. It's not a problem of not doing enough exercise. And, and we as exercise physiologists completely made that error. And industry wants us to comp- continue making this error. Industry wants us to keep saying, guys, you can eat these refined carbs as long as you do your triathlon and train two hours a day. But the reality is you don't need to have that extra weight. It just tells us your diet's wrong, and you must fix your diet first. So that athlete who's put on three kilograms during the rest period is eating too much carbohydrate. So absolutely cut the carbs, and you'll find that the three kilograms will disappear, and it won't be a problem. But then you'll understand, begin to understand, that this is not a calories-in, calories-out issue. It's an issue of hunger and insulin resistance and too much insulin. All right, so we had some connection issues and we have now rescheduled and we are recording this part of the interview, the last part on a separate day uh, where we lost the audio. And what we just talked about were about how to get to raise weight perhaps during the off season. And you were talking about how LCHF in general is enough to get to raise weight pretty easily. But then we were about to start discussing ketosis and if that has uh, any additional benefits and what kind of role ketosis and ketogenic diets can play in, in this whole picture. Well, indeed, you know, there's some really good studies coming out of Oxford last year showing that if you ingest ketones, your performance seems to go up in short duration exercise. So I don't think one can discount that. I'm less sure that we really need to do it for the majority, though. I, I think it's a very inter- expensive intervention, and I'm not sure that it, you could justify it for everyone. And also, the other thing is that I think if you do take external ketones or you are ketogenic, the ketones might be acting in the brain as much as anything else. And so the performance benefits might be due to a brain effect. I just am not convinced that adding more fuel to the body during exercise is going to improve one's performance. However, there's also evidence that ketones do a lot of other things, that they enhance immune function and they may improve mitochondrial biogenesis and so on. So there's there's a huge amount of, of possibility that ketones could act in ways that we still don't understand. I have a huge respect for Steve Finney and Jeff Ehrlich, who've really been promoting the ketogenic diet for athletic performance. And and neither of them is stupid. They are very, very clever people, and they wouldn't promote something that, that doesn't have really good evidence and for which there wouldn't be some biological explanation. So I think that we're still not there to understand the full role of a ketogenic diet for athletic performance. Uh, I think that one of the problems for many of us is it's very difficult to stay in in intense ketosis. The dietary changes are quite tough. However, for example, I, I, you really have to eat a very low-protein, high-fat diet to be in ketosis all the time. And for many of us, that's, that's pretty difficult. So I think that people need to experiment for themselves and see what happens if they're in ketosis and, and see if they really need to be in advanced ketosis and whether that has any additional benefits. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for that 
clarification and we were discussing off air as well i just got in my inbox an uh, an email with uh, the scholar alerts of the day and there's a new study on uh, ketogenic diet benefits body composition and well-being but not performance in a pilot case study of new zealand endurance athletes but i won't ask you to comment on that since uh, neither of us have read it properly um, i have not done that either i just browsed through the abstract but we'll have a link to that as well in, in the show notes because it can be interesting for people to get uh, to know a little bit more about uh, the latest research um, that wraps it up for uh, the general interview questions but i still have three rapid fire questions for you starting with what's your favorite book blog or resource related to nutrition psychology endurance sports or anything like that well i've got a lot a couple but i think the the book uh, good calories bad calories by gary tovs really set me up and made me realize that nutrition was not what i thought it was that's a brilliant book. And then Nina Teichold's uh, Big Fat Surprise. I think those two books are absolutely astonishing. If you want to understand nutrition for health. And then any of Jeff Folek's books on, on low-carb diets for health or for athletic performance. I think those would be the three books that you have to have on your shelf. You, don't, you can't get anywhere without those three. And they will be linked up in the show notes on thatdraftonshow.com so that you can easily get access to those books. What's a personal habit that's uh, helped you achieve success? I think the physical activity, and I think particularly running ultramarathons. I started sport as rowing and became quite competent and then decided I wanted to do an individual sport because rowing is a fabulous team sport. And I always wanted to run the South African Comrades Marathon, which is a 90-kilometer, 56-mile race. And it's very, very hilly. And three years before, I couldn't run three miles at the pace I eventually ran 56 miles. And, and that taught me that with effort and belief, you could do things you couldn't believe. And I think that really turned my life around because then I, I'd, I'd achieved something that I thought was utterly impossible. And from then I said, well, actually, you know, if you put your head to it and you, you work hard and you train hard, you can do things. So I think daily physical activity uh, it keeps me healthy, but it was the, uh, that achievement that made me realize that you can achieve things that you would never have believed possible. And finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? And I think that we already know the answer, so just <laughs> sum it up quickly. Yeah, no question. Uh, I wish I'd known about this diet when I was in my when I was fifteen or sixteen, because I was profoundly insulin resistant. I've got evidence back. We've got data on me, and I had a fasting insulin level which was four times normal at the age of twenty-eight, when I was running one hundred and forty kilometers a week and I was lean and running marathons and so on. But I was eating a high carbohydrate diet, and of course, no one knew what it meant. So we just thought, well, you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, you must secrete more insulin. But we didn't realize that, that I was profoundly insulin resistant. And, and my running performances went down quite quickly after I adopted this very high carbohydrate diet. I put on weight and ultimately became type 2 diabetic. So I know if I had eaten this diet all my life, I wouldn't have type 2 diabetes. And I would have been, my running would have lasted competitively a lot longer. And I just want to finish up with my great friend is a guy called Bruce Fordyce, as whom you know and who won the Comrades Marathon nine times. And I advised him to go on a high-carbohydrate diet. And he won the Comrades Marathons. And, of course, we all said, because you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, 
Well, he became insulin resistant, put on weight, and changed his diet about four years ago. And his health and fitness improved dramatically. And he said, you know, Tim, I wish I'd known about this diet when I was winning the Comrades, because I think I would have done even better. Perfect. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you again for coming on a second time to finish up this interview. Finally, where do you suggest that people go and to find out more about you? And is there anything that you, you want to promote or, or plug? Well, I'm obviously working quite hard on trying to promote this low-carbohydrate diet globally. And we formed the Noakes Foundation from money we raised from the book The Real Meal Revolution. And so at the moment, that's kind of where I'm putting a lot of my effort uh, is to help promote the idea that you can actually eat very well. Even the most poorest people can eat well. And uh, that's a big focus. And we have a foundation website, the Noakes Foundation website. And we are about to start a network for promoting the teaching of this diet for doctors. So we're setting up a network to help doctors because, you know, we think that Although we criticize the medical profession, most doctors, the vast, vast majority, actually just want to help. But they have no idea because they've not been taught and they feel scared about prescribing this diet. And we really want to provide them with information. So that's a big focus in the next few months. But it's all on the Noakes Foundation website. And incidentally, 80 videos of the evidence that we gave in the trial, including Nina Teichold and Zoe Harcom who came to South Africa to be my expert witnesses. There are 80 video clips of the evidence that we provided during the trial. And it really does provide an introduction into low-fat, low, sorry, low-carbohydrate nutrition in a way that you won't find uh, very easily on the web. Perfect. And I will as well be linked up in the show notes. All right, folks, this has been Professor Tim Noakes. Uh, I really, really hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I have enjoyed talking to you, Tim. Thank you again so much. Thank you. It's been lovely to chat to you and to your listeners. Thank you so much for including me. I, it's been a great privilege and I, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right, thank you a lot for listening to this series of interviews with Professor Tim Noakes. And uh, just to clarify a bit on uh, my standpoint on, on today's interview and today's topic, because we have been talking about uh, nutrition for triathletes before on this show and also about uh, LCHF diets. And I know that I have stated that I don't think that it's ideal for triathletes. And uh, to give you some more context to that, I think that it's not ideal if you are trying to really produce that winning performance you have everything perfectly laid out already you have a good healthy diet already then i don't think that performance wise lchf diets are necessarily the best way to go although that being said as uh, tim pointed out there are a lot of great endurance athletes performing really great feats on low carb diets and it works for them so there might not be just one solution. So who's to say that they're wrong, right? They they are performing great great endurance performances. Uh, people like Dave Scott and uh, and a lot of others have been have been doing that for for a long time already. So at the end of the day, we're all an experiment of one. And also, the benefit of LCHF might not be for for optimal performance, in my opinion. But 
especially since a lot of the population in many Western countries these days are suffering from things like diabetes and insulin resistance, as Tim pointed out, even getting your basic health right will be beneficial for your performance. And in that regard, that might be the play, the, the role that uh, LCHF diets has to play from a performance standpoint as well. If you're not already very healthy and eating a, a very healthy diet, because mind you, there are healthy carbs as well. Of course, everything is depends on what, what your goal is, but uh, I'm not talking about eating processed carbs and refined carbs and uh, and added sugars when when we talk about high carbohydrate diets for for triathlon of course it's going to be high quality carbs in that case but uh, but if you don't have that if you if your standard diet it might be in, in many cultures the standard diet is consists of highly refined refined grain uh, uh, grains and um, and added sugars and and all those sorts of things and in that case it might be difficult for you to actually know what makes good carbs and uh, and maybe going on an LCHF diet makes it easier to stick to a healthy, nutritious, nutrient-dense diet and uh, then that might be a good thing from a performance standpoint as well. And of course, if you have is insulin resistance like uh, many, many, many people actually have, then, then that might be something that you actually need to do from a health perspective. Anyway, just a couple of points that I wanted to to make it clear from what my standpoint is as well. And uh, mind you that when I talk about, and we have been talking about on interviews before, for example, with uh, Ted Munson from Science in Sport and uh, Kim Schwabenbauer and uh, Jesse Kropelnicki, and that also depends on what kind of training you are, What when we talked with Jesse. Anyway, when we talked about those high-carbohydrate diets, sorry, it's getting late here, so I'm having trouble speaking, that my lens and the lens of many of my guests have usually been trying to really conjure up the, the optimal performance. And uh, But I'll willingly admit that my lens is much, much, much more narrow than Professor Noakes, and uh, Professor Noakes is much wiser and more accomplished than myself, and uh, looks at a bigger perspective, definitely. So I think that this interview was extremely valuable and I learned heck of a lot. So again, thank you so much, Tim, for this interview. As always, for the listeners, you'll find the show notes for today's episode on thattriathlonshow.com. You can email me with questions and feedback to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K. And if you found value in this interview, or, or you do find value in that triathlon show in general, it would be amazing if you could share it with your triathlon friends. I would be so, so, so grateful. So if you mind, do a little exercise with me. Grab your phone right now, open up Messenger, and text somebody that you recently chatted about triathlon with. Hey, buddy, I thought you'd like to check out this amazing triathlon podcast called That Triathlon Show. You can find it on thattriathlonshow.com. Love you. Your name. And of course, you can replace your name with what your actual name is. But anyway, if you would do that, that would make my day. And especially if you email me to tell me you did it. On Monday, we'll talk about running injury prevention, running form and uh, rehab from running injuries and all sorts of stuff with my good friend and uh, an expert on the topic, James Dunn from the UK. And uh, 
yeah, I've already done this interview and it was super useful. I'm already using some of the new stuff I learned, although I'm already very familiar with his teachings. But uh, suffice it to say that you don't want to miss it. So until Monday, keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.